that. All right, here we are. We're one minute before the hour. So um, let's go ahead. Let's see if any people are gonna join us. And then I can, um, I hope that they pull them in correctly. Why do I wanna just try this one more time and see if I can't get it there? See, it's not, this app is still in development mode. What? It wasn't Tuesday. <laughs> Why is it? Or it wasn't Wednesday. Why is it on Friday? <laughs> that way. Oh, technology. Anyway, uh, we do love hate technology, don't we? We love it when it works. We hate it when it doesn't. <laughs> All right. So let me introduce everyone. I'm Lynn Davison, your adulting coach. And it is my pleasure to bring to you an author, the co-author of Flexible Mindsets in Schools, which I read by substituting the word schools with at home and parents for teachers and young adults for learners and got so much out of it. This is something that we all need to develop in ourselves and we certainly see that, um, that flexible mindsets will definitely serve our autistic young adults. So thank you so much, Susanna, and I can't wait to, um, to learn more from you today. And thank you so much for inviting me. And also thank you for being so flexible in your ability to switch out schools and parent teachers and students, because I think you're absolutely right. Flexible mindsets can benefit us all. So. Yes, yes. And I appreciate your advocacy in the area of equity, because having raised now um, six children, I can see and several of, um, we have, we have we have black grandchildren we have hispanic children we have white we have all of that and um, the impact of race and disability is pretty impressive so i appreciate um, your advocacy in that area in the schools as well yeah we felt it was really important when looking at something like flexible mindsets that can seem like it's an extra or it can seem like it's only for those who have the brain space and ability and yet what we would argue is it's the complete opposite if we truly want to have equitable schools and everybody being able to have the same access to the future they want for themselves it's absolutely critical that we equal this playing field um, and flexible mindsets is one of the ways we can do this for sure yes. oh for sure for sure because the way we've always done it is, isn't always working for everyone. And that's my, my mission is to do my part to build a work, world that works for everyone. And yeah. so I think we're absolutely aligned together and um, can't wait to, to level up my skills because they, they could use some work. <laughs> so um, the questions that we have had submitted already is, what can we do or say to autis autistic young adults to help them believe in flexible mindsets? Yeah, and this is, uh, in terms of, this gives us a nice big picture way to start this conversation, uh, because I think we tend to think, especially when we're working with people on the spectrum, of rigid thinking versus flexible thinking. And mm -hmm. it absolutely is not an either or situation. There are many, many situations where 
more logical, methodical, even rigid types of thinking become incredibly valuable and are a real strength. Mm -hmm. We also know, especially when we're looking at creativity, when we're looking at social dynamic relationships, really any dynamic situation in life, that a flexible mindset is really is going to be the beneficial mindset to have in that situation. So what's really important is that when we look at that metacognitive piece of the, which when I say metacognition, I'm referring to self-awareness and an understanding of your own thinking. It's being able to know which situation would it be more beneficial to be more methodical and logical and use that part of my brain? And when would it be more beneficial to think of some flexible strategies and to work in a different way? So I think for starting to help people on the spectrum to understand more about a flexible mindset, we have in our book, a Spiral of Reflective Learning, and I'll probably refer to this several times because I feel like it's kind of like a little roadmap for how to build any new skill or new mindset, um, a new way of doing things. And that is to start simply by being a model. And we learn so much through actions, way more than we're gonna learn through our verbal communication. So when you demonstrate a flexible mindset and you pair that, this is the piece that I think there's many people out there who are absolutely demonstrating a flexible mindset, but what we would suggest is that you pair that with actually noticing and explicitly sharing that, um, you know, that kind of self-talk that, oh, I'm choosing to do it this way, or I could have done it this way, but I'm also gonna think about doing it this way. The more we can kind of do talk alouds and share what's going on in our thinking. How am I being flexible right now? And, and then also not only how am I being flexible right now, but the reflection piece after is also really key in terms of, well, now that I was flexible, here's the benefit that I got from being flexible rather than just looking at it this one way or choosing not to do it. And the more that we ourselves can start by modeling that and sharing that thinking process, both before, during, and after we are using our flexible thinking, the more it becomes uh, something that you know you can start to see for yourself oh i i see where this applies and then you can start to help sometimes with um you know when you have difficulty being self-reflective what you can do is you can notice for people oh i just noticed that when you did that that was being flexible and it's amazing i i used to um when i was working with students on the spectrum that was something i did on a regular basis in our sessions even the smallest little thing they did that was flexible i was like you were just flexible. Did you oh, notice that? Yeah. Yeah. And then I'd be like, what did that feel like? So that they get to yeah. so you connect. connect their body. Yes. Them in their bodies. Wonderful. So you're getting all the senses involved. Exactly. And that's where it's going to stick. Right? How does that feel inside? Oh, so good. Because you, if you just continue to use the words, they just go in one ear and out the other, unfortunately. But when we can connect it to a felt experience, and start to realize, oh, sometimes, and it doesn't always feel good to be flexible, but often I found that the response when I said, oh, what was that like? When you just you just thought about another way to try that, they did feel a little calmer, or they did have a little, you know, excitement, or something positive would be communicated back. So I think that's one way to start to just notice what's already happening. 
highlight and be more explicit with our language. So it's kind of that we you'll hear me say often, it, you know, starting with the modeling, your own self-awareness with those talk alouds, start to notice and name positive actions, first of all, for what they're doing that is flexible and demonstrating a flexible mindset. And then when once you've got that started, you can also start to name some of the things that aren't helping them to be flexible because we know there's going to be many of those. But we need to we need to have a, a nervous system that can hear those things before we start to say, so this is getting in the way of you having a flexible mindset. What I'm noticing is that when this happens, I notice that you get you get really thinking that there's only one way to do this or whatever, you know, whatever the situation might be. So that's kind of like a three-step way to build that idea of a flexible mindset and how it might be beneficial to a person. So it's not only modeling, but talking aloud also, then noticing the positive actions that they're taking and asking them what was that like? And then, which is great because it ties their, and then naming the things that aren't helping them be flexible. Yes. So good. I grabbed your um, illustration from the Kindle version of your book that I bought, and there it is. That's that spiral of reflection. Um, and I, that's why you've got to get the book because it gives you much more than what we can cover in an hour. It's, it's a chewy, delicious book. There's a lot of good stuff in there. <laughs> And, and that spiral, although, like you said, it is related to educators, but if you were to look at it, it's at the end of every chapter for the first five chapters. Yes. But they, it, there are questions that go along with that or reflections and what that might sound like and how you might model. And I think for the most part, although it is specific to the classroom, I think, as you noted, you could yes. definitely see how, how you can be as a parent or a coach how you could be metacognitive, how you could model, how you could share so that there's those things are highlighted together, how you the the springboarding is definitely something you can do just one on one even. And then always as a parent and a coach, uh, you're always thinking on your feet. And that's just looking for those opportunities. When can I very quickly just, oh, I just noticed you be flexible or I just noticed that this was something we want more of, you know, that's really going to help you to be more flexible. So all of those things can apply to different, um, different people. Uh, yeah, I love this. And I love your idea too. your concept of, um, let me get there. There I am again, um, of how there's, okay, there's on one side, side of it, the rigid on the other side, the flexible. And if we can start out kind of in the middle and decide which direction would work best for us, that's when we're really demonstrating that flexible mindset. Yeah. So well, I, obviously that's the end goal and we, we're, yeah. we're always going to work somewhere in between, but it's, <laughs> yeah. as always, it's about having the self-awareness. Having yeah. that self-awareness. Yeah. And speaking of, that's the next question. How do we help them become aware of their own thinking? <laughs> I think, I think I just may have overlapped those questions. Really well. <laughs> yeah. Because you know, as I said, I, I do feel like metacognition in a flexible mindset, which I think that question is coming up, so I don't want to go too much into my next question again, but um, in a flexible mindset, it, it is the combination of metacognition, which is self-awareness, along with the I can messages, along with executive function strategies. Those three pillars are what build a flexible mindset, and it's when we're interacting with those three things. So self-awareness is the first piece of that puzzle because we can't 
we're not going to want to change or do things differently if we're not even aware of where we are now and where we want to go. So it really has to begin with an awareness of, oh, this is what I'm doing right now. I would like it to be different. So again, for people on the spectrum, which I think some of the questions were alluding to this, that we often find that, that students on the spectrum, they're not really open and wanting to do things differently. And that's, that's the fundamental problem. So in that case, what I would suggest is that Again, modeling yours in your own life, until we see a benefit to doing something differently, we're not gonna do it. No. So if you can start showing in your own life and explaining, oh, I just decided that I was gonna try this in a couple of different ways, and look what I just figured out. It was so cool. I just found another way to make this, you know, Lego, Lego strut, whatever you know, I'm thinking of young kids, I'm, I'm actually should make it a little bit older, but you know, I just figured out another way to make this thing work. It was yeah. so cool. And getting excited about doing things differently and recognizing that, you know, until until we as individuals think there's a reason and that we have some desire, there's, oh, there is something I want over there. We're not going to actually be open. So it does need to start by just in your own environment and modeling it and highlighting it and celebrating all of those yes. things that you're recognizing we want more of for this individual because we know their life will be more fulfilling we know that they would be happier we know that this is something that's going to benefit them lifelong if we can just help them to build it now yes. um yes. and also recognizing that that is a, a slower process that's not going to happen quickly but it can Definitely, when we start to find ways to, when we look at things through a flexible mindset, we can start to see it everywhere we go and everything we do. I notice now, I'm constantly just noticing yeah. what, when people are demonstrating flexible mindset, when people are doing things that are really helping them to be creative and, and look at things in different ways and to be critical in their thinking. I just notice it and point it out, um, you know, and, and that really helps to build the motivation for it. And that's why I believe that the parents are the best coach for their kids because they're around to notice when that's happening. They have the continuity over years that teachers don't, you know, don't have the advantage of so that we can notice, you know, well, look at where you were five years ago and look at where you are now. It's amazing how much more flexible you've become. Look how you solve this problem. Look how you're structuring your life the way you want to. That's why the parents are really the ones that can help this process. And that's why they're so involved in our course. And the way that we teach metacognition and, and just the first step is we just encourage thought downloads. We just want them to do a brain dump of what's happening in their mind. And the way that we tie that to something that's important to them is we look at their life GPS in the 10 domains. And we ask them, where are the results in your life, not where you want them to be? And that's where we start, is right where they care the most. Not where the parent cares the most, because that it's just not gonna be the place that it could be. I mean, there could be a nice overlap, which is lovely, but often we don't even know where they're dissatisfied with their life because we've never taken the, you know, we haven't gone through the process of documenting what they want and then what they want next, what they've created and what they want next, and then where the gaps are. So that's how we weave it into the coaching that we that we do at the art of adulting. 
So actually, I mean, this was your next one, which ties into what you've been saying. How do we help them notice their feelings? It absolutely, I mean, I think those three steps still apply. However, so the three steps being to, to model how you're feeling and to be explicit and talk aloud. This is how I'm feeling. This happened and this made me feel this. And then also then to notice and name their feelings and then positive feelings and emotions and then move to the negative ones when they're have a bit more but the, i think the additional piece i would say for that one and it's it you know we're getting in a place where schools are doing a little bit more social and emotional education yes they are still, yeah it, it still is again like you noted it, it happens so much in the home that i think we're always going to need to have an emotion vocabulary for home as well and i think the this really starts with an education in feelings to, to just be talking about your feelings and connecting that to, you know, what, how you feel in, because of what happened. Those are, those are great things to point out. But if a person themselves does not have a feeling vocabulary, if they don't understand emotions and, you know, early education really starts with looking at facial expressions and what is that communicating body language and what is that communicating that kind of learning needs to happen first before we can start to expect anyone to be able to do that for themselves um, and you know I think it would be great and we argue in the book that you know teaching of social and emotional skills and being really explicit with that throughout mm -hmm. education at all different levels because those those feeling vocabulary that changes as we grow and as we get yes. older the complexity and the dynamics that are required to be in tune with how you're feeling and how you would manage them. The strategies change throughout our lifetime. So this and we is really the emotional sensation yeah. wheel that we use in our course. And it it has those six main emotions, which I think most of our people are comfortable with identifying the six main ones, but these ones out here, these nuanced ones are really hard. What I like about this particular wheel is that it includes the sensations in the body on the outside. So sometimes we go from the sensation in the body in to find the word that describes the emotion best. But I don't expect anything better than the six in the middle. And sometimes it's uncomfortable or comfortable, high energy, low energy. And that's as far as we need to go, because then we know where we are in, in terms of our, um, where we are in, in those four quadrants helps us know if we need to readjust, if we need to notice, well, we just need to notice that. Yeah. yeah. In terms of self-regulation, you're right. That essentially that's all you need to know is, and, and again, I think this is gonna come up with a, a question coming up, so I won't get into it at this moment, but being able to uh, identify what quadrant you're in can really help do, for this situation, do I need to adjust? And that's the dynamic part of that. Not, none is good, none is bad, You, but you need to know, is this the right amount for this particular situation and experience that I'm having right now? And how do I change it if it's not? Yes, and often it's just by breathing. <laughs> I mean, that's there's a reason why they teach that at the ashrams in India and have for the last you know thousands of years is the breath is the first thing they teach. And often that is the best way to decelerate us. So that, that, that's so good. I love all those pointers. Boy, we really need them in our home. <laughs> so what questions can we ask to encourage I can thoughts? So yeah, the I can messages in flexible mindsets, that's that second pillar. So first we need to become aware of, you know, who we are as a learner and, and how we're thinking. And then 
obviously, um, one of the one of the things that I realize in working with students is that we can we can be aware, but if there isn't that desire to be able to do things differently, to be able to persevere and stick with things, we're not going anywhere. No. So the the ICANN messages, one of the, the most important things about them, first of all, is you're thinking about any empowering question is going to be a, an ICANN message. So questioning and curiosity are kind of core to a flexible mindset. They, they stimulate the brain in a way that no other strategy will ever do. And when you ask a student an empowering question, what you're doing is you're giving that person agency to figure out for themselves what they think and how they feel. And what is important, I think, we, we especially growth mindset is something that's very familiar in, you know, there's lots of research to back it. Um, Carol Dweck has done such amazing work in that field and that a growth mindset is great. But what a flexible mindset does is it really takes it one step further because it's not only that we need to appreciate that, yes, we can get smarter, that, yes, we have agency in our own lives, but it's also recognizing that we can take the power out of some of those negative emotions that we sometimes feel around not knowing and, you know, make mistakes and when things don't go as planned. So when we start to spend time also normalizing not knowing for, for students, when we start to really encourage a trial and error approach to yes. how we learn, Let's do an what we're doing, yeah, what we're doing is we're taking out the judgment. We're yeah. saying everything you do in life is just data. And we can choose what we want to do with that data. What that data can help us figure out what's working and what's not working. Mm -hmm. And you know, we we encourage in schools, but this would be great. It's great at home for a parent as well to simply the, when I have a student who says, I don't know, I'm like, yes, you don't know, because guess what? That's where learning happens. Learning doesn't happen when we already know what to do. Thank so let's get excited. Yes. Let's go. Yes. Yay. Now we're in the right spot. We're in a place where we can figure something out. This is cool. Let's figure this out. And so we, we encourage an experiment in a class in for teachers in a classroom where we try and, and get them to do that. Like, put up your hand if you don't know the answer. And then we're like, yes, you were brave enough to identify that. I mean, at some point, I would love that there was nothing brave about admitting you didn't know something, because like I said, this is where the magic happens. Yes. It's in the not knowing and removing that judgment, removing that fear that, oh, my gosh, if I speak up right now, I might not have the right answer. That's a risk. I'm not going to take it. I don't want to fail. We don't want people to be feeling like not knowing is scary in any way, because what happens when we're scared our nervous systems just go into overdrive. We yep. go into the fight, flight, freeze, yep. and we shut down the resources yep. in our brain to be able to access and to learn. And so we're, it's really counterproductive to have any of that negativity associated. So I love the idea at home of encouraging the trial and error approach when somebody wants to figure something out. Oh, let's, let's figure this out together. And then whatever information you get, we're having a science experiment here. There's when we do science experiments, no one ever is no. upset. Well, I shouldn't say, yeah, sometimes you don't like the results you get, but there's no <laughs> joke. They're not good or bad. They're just information. And they yeah. tell us more about what we were trying to explore. 
So I think that approach combined with, yes, making sure that we're asking lots of empowering questions of students so that they feel more in charge of themselves in their own learning, that yes, you can do this, you can get smarter, you can build more neural pathways, we can get blood flow going to all parts of your brain, this is yeah. all possible. And in addition, let's not have so much fear around not knowing and let's just approach things in a trial and error way so that you can figure things out and see what works and doesn't work without the emotion. You know, that requires me as a parent to let go of the thought that I know what's best for my child, especially when they're young adults. I need to be able to say, this, is, this may be what worked for me, but I don't know if it's going to work for you. So let me offer you some suggestions, but it's truly up to you which you pick up and do the actions on. And I'm willing to, to be wrong about what the best way is because you're the expert in your life and you know what's gonna work for you. So let's do those experiments to figure out just exactly what that is. You know, is it better for you to go school full-time? Is it better for you to take a class and work? Is it better for you to just work? You know that better than I do where you are in your thinking and what seems to be working best for you. So I no longer have to be the autocratic expert. I can be the coach. I can step into the coach role of let me just help you with maybe, I know some things that I've learned over the years, but you're the one that's the expert in your life. And, and even again, when you are saying those things, being as explicit to, as you just said, I may be wrong and that's totally fine. I don't mind at all because that means that you just figured out something new about you that I didn't know before. Yeah. So again, you know you're thinking that in your head, but we don't always say it out loud. I know. And assume that people are picking up on those nuances. They're not. Those are subtle things. Um, those are those are messages that need to be said out loud as often as possible. Especially with our kids who don't necessarily pick up on the nonverbal cues as quickly. I mean, they yes. just don't. That's the way their brain got wired. So that's why we have to put the data out there so that, that, you know, what our thoughts are out there so that they know. Exactly. The tool we use often is the steer map for that. That's where we look at the situation. I like to use my hand because the situation is outside of our control over here, but it's our thoughts, emotions, actions, and results that are, are in our control. So as long as we understand that this isn't going to change, we don't have the power to change that but we have the power to change our thoughts, which are gonna influence our emotions, which will flavor our actions and create our results. We can do that ourselves. So let's look at those and see what's happening. That S-T-E-A-R map is what we use as the tool to you know, slow things down and pull them apart by putting them into those categories and making our discussions visual by putting them on their life GPS in their steer map um, sheet on their life worksheet. And we write down, you know, what has been happening and okay, what else has been happening? And all right, what's the next thing that's been happening? Okay. Now, what do you want to, how do you want to feel about it or what results do you want to create? And then we fill in that steer map so that they get an idea of what a possible other thought might be that would work better for them. And it's them generating it and putting it into their steer map, typing it in so that they are actively involved in noticing what's going on and what's that, what that's creating for them. 
that's the tool that we use to move, you know, just tiny changes in that little steering wheel, you know, <laughs> just tiny changes. Let's just see what happens. Yeah, and I love that it's visual and, you know, it actually, you can use your hand to kind of guide that process. Those, that combination is, is really powerful. It is, it is. It's really made a difference um, in terms of the, the response discipline that several of my longer term students are noticing that they are able to have. They're able to pause enough to say, okay, that's what's happening. I can't change it. And let me decide between this space and this space what, how I'm going to think about it. It's, it's wonderful to see. <laughs> so it's a great tool. Yeah, for the parents as well. So um, the next question we have here is what helps the most to help executive functioning? Is it writing thoughts down? What is it? So this is interesting. So if you think of executive function, I know it's such a fancy title, but I, I like to just simplify it and say, you know, basically if you want to, executive function is all about getting stuff done. So it's, it's our ability to identify a goal or like, what, what do we want to do? What do we already have that we can use to figure this out and then make it happen? And, you know, I simplify it. And then of course, what we know is that executive function processes are, you know, they're intricate. There's many, many of them and they're all working, you know, crazily behind the scenes together in order to help you figure out what you need to do, use what you already know and make it happen. So, but if your goal is to get stuff done, if that's what we're working to build, yes, I will say that writing things down can be helpful. And I'm a particularly huge fan of, you know, my to-do lists and you know, my checklists and all of those things, they're great. But what I wanna say about that is that, and we promote this in the book as well, is that there is no one right strategy that is right for everybody. No. And so, you know, of course we all want, it's easier when there's a recipe, <laughs> but there is no recipe when it comes to executive function because they're just too complex. Too many what, There's too many variables and every single person in every situation, you know, is a little bit different. Now, having said that, what I wanna say is that there is one foundational piece that I have found in many students with executive function challenges that does tend to be much weaker and is an area that we could put a lot more effort and support into, um, or sorry, intervention into, which is visualizing. Now, when I say visualizing, it's creating mental anchors in our life. What, what we've found through research and a lot of, a lot of this work um, I've learned through a speech and language pathologist, Sarah Ward. Yes, but, yes. Um, one yeah. of the things, that I do notice that I, and I'm constantly supporting my students to try and build, you, in order to be able to move through this world and across time and to be able to, you know, things don't happen in the moment. So if you're trying to accomplish something, time is involved. And what we notice with people with weak executive function is that they're not thinking of the future in terms of visualizing it. They may say, I want this, you know, right. in the future, but what they're not doing is then creating a picture in their mind of what does that look like? What does somebody who is, you know, successfully working um, at the grocery store, what are they doing? <laughs> they're not, they're not picturing what that looks like and they're not um, necessary. And in order to move through time, we need to be able to hold a picture in our mind of 
this is where I am. This is where I'm, you know, my next step. These are the steps and visualizing it. This can be done in the moment, like with young children, you know, when you hear them saying, well, I, you know, did you get your, did you, are you ready for school? Do you have everything ready for school? Yeah. yeah. And they're like, and you're like, but you didn't brush your teeth, but your shoes aren't, your gym shoes aren't in the bag. Your lunch bag is still sitting on the counter. And they're like, oh, oh yeah. Because they heard get ready for school. Well, those are just words. Yes. But if we help people and to think, what does, yeah, yeah, what does going to school require? Oh yes, I have gym today. I'm gonna go, I have, I need my lunch because I'm gonna have lunch. I, you know, I need my backpack and that's at the door. If we're picturing ourselves moving through time and space, it really helps us to ground us and hold those pieces together that are all so complex, that require so much of our thinking. And pictures are, images have been with us forever, whereas words have just been a small evolution, part of our evolutionary history. And so those images can be just so powerful for the brain. It's less stress on the brain to, yeah on to the visual of what I'm doing and where I'm going and it doesn't just disappear in one ear and out the other it's not gone it can you can hold you know we can some people can hold a movie in their mind forever they know exactly the sequence of the movie and where it yeah. went because the images yeah. are just so powerful for our brain yeah. so I do feel like at any age no matter what you're trying to accomplish whatever you're trying to get done if you can be visualizing starting with this is what I want done i want this essay written i want i want to be successful in this job whatever your goal is and then if you think about those steps that you're breaking down how am i going to get to that end goal i know that i in my essay it's got an introduction it's got three body paragraphs and it's got a conclusion and it's got to be typed and it's got to be double spaced and you know you're you're picturing that end product and then we move backwards and we start, so now what do I need to do? And holding that end goal in mind visually, it provides that mental anchor to keep us moving along the path instead of just being, oh, what am I supposed to be doing right now? And where am I? So that that is a skill that I think we do not spend enough time on. And yes, some of us do it naturally, um, but a lot of people do not do that naturally. And it's not something that you can just say, oh, just make visuals. We, we really need to break that down and help students to, um, and young adults even, to be able to, what does that look like in my life and how can I do that? I love that, I love that. Cause that calls it mimetic ideation, right? Lovely term. That, I think that's so good because, um, you know, okay, you need a resume, What picture a resume. You need, you need a cover letter or an email to send with your resume. What does that look like? And okay, you may need to go to this to the place where you're in, you know, where you're interested and actually physically bring them a resume because so much is done electronically now. If you can make an impression in person, and you so you picture yourself going to the place where you want to have the job. Those are the types of things that are that our young adults need to practice creating over and over again. So it becomes easier and easier every time yeah and a lot of us do it subconsciously and again that's about yeah. making it explicit before i leave the house in the morning yeah i pick my day and i go oh i have that meeting so then i need that piece of paper i'm going out for lunch so i don't need my lunch box today i'm you know right. i'm going to the gym after work i'm going to need my gym bag like i do that before yep. i leave the door i don't think about it and i don't even realize but i actually am visualizing my day before i leave so that i make sure yeah have everything I need and I'm on track. And in, in so many cases, that's a more difficult thing 
that just doesn't come naturally for people who have autistic brains. Yeah. Um, so we, we need to put the supports in place to make that happen so that it will happen more naturally as time goes by. Yeah. So um, the next question it looks like we have here is how to help our autistic young adults feel safe to puzzle and grapple. Yes. I love, well, the, I love that word grapple and puzzle. So and chewy delicious. Yeah. I love that you love them because so do I. Yeah. Grapple become one of my favorites just because I have found I have found such richness in learning more about grappling and figuring out for myself how can I grapple more because there is so much um, fulfillment that comes from grappling. And I love this question because it is not something that you can just will yourself to have. It yeah. is, you know, puzzling and grappling. So we call it productive puzzling as, as the big picture in terms of it's like the mechanism for building a flexible mindset yeah. is being able to productively puzzle. And that is, you know, you were mentioning kind of that zone before, but productive puzzling is about being in that zone, feeling first of all, safe enough to enter into the zone getting into the zone and working within your, you know, the scaffold of what you're able to do with just that next little bit of challenge so that we're not, we're not moving out of our comfort. No, I don't want to yeah, say that. Out of our comfort zone, but to the zone of tolerance. Yes. So yeah. we, I think the analogy in the book we're, we're referring to, which I really like, just, I think it helps people to visualize this is opening and closing the window on learning. So when we're referring to opening this, and this is all really around the nervous system. So if we think of that open window being when our brains are full of blood flowing to all of our different neural pathways in our brain, we have access to everything that our bodies and our minds offer us. And so we are kind of thriving in an, you know, the ability to be curious and to take risks for learning and, you know, to make mistakes, all of those things, that's when the window is open. What starts to happen for our students in general, this is not specific to um, students with challenges with executive function or students on the spectrum or anything else, but what we do know is that when we feel any level of fear, when we do not have a trusting, safe environment, what starts to happen is our nervous system starts to tell us we're not safe. And so what starts to happen, and it happens gradually, it not this isn't one day, this isn't one incident, this isn't this happens over time in school. We hear we hear some criticism that hurts. The window gets closed. We there's, you know, the classroom is really loud. It starts to, you know, the window starts to close. We get a bad mark on a test that we studied for our you know our window starts to close we can relate this to anything in our own lives i'm sure we can all we all know when our nervous system starts to shut down what ha starts to happen is thankfully to help us survive evolutionarily wise we go into fight flight freeze because we realize oh my gosh i am being threatened in this moment whether that threat be real or not you know there are not tigers in these classrooms but the threat for a student's brain is real and when we feel that threat, the blood does not flow to our prefrontal cortex where we need it. It doesn't flow to lots of, it flows specifically to the parts of our bodies that are going to help us to survive, which is to completely shut down or bolt and run and get out of that situation. And so when your resources are not 
focused on learning, that's how what we're referring to is closing the window on learning. But interestingly enough, we also mentioned on page 46 of the book that there's actually a sweet spot. I think sometimes what we're trying to do is we're trying to help people get super calm and let's get, you know, really relaxed so that you can access learning. Well, that actually isn't where our brains are best either. We actually need just a little bit of tension. We need just a little bit of, it's that, that zone where we want just a little bit of, we want curiosity. We want a little bit of excitement maybe. We want a little bit of interest of, that's the motivation to grapple. If we want you to dig deeper, you're not gonna be like completely chill. Oh, oh yeah, let's like really get into this. No, we want just that little bit. So we have like a speedometer in the book and, and we want it kind of right here in order to learn. And then of course we can go way over when our systems, um, you know, when we're in that very either fully scared mode or we're in full anger mode or, you know, those are of course not going to be helpful for learning either. But I, I do think it's interesting that I think we try sometimes to get people a little too calm and that doesn't help us grapple because grappling requires a little discomfort. That is innate learning. And if again, if we're not feeling a little bit of discomfort, we already know the answer. We're not we're not being curious. We're not feeling that little, our brain isn't getting sparked and firing when we're not having that little bit of tension to go, hmm, I don't know this. And that's the motivation to dig deeper and to grapple and to puzzle. Does that, does that kind of yeah. clarify that? I'm just, I'm just thinking of, a, of an incident recently where I, yeah, where I needed to make sure that that was happening in a coaching session I had. So, and, and you're giving me some ideas of, of how to go back to it and and go back in again because it needs to be gone back into because um, it is uncomfortable but what happens is that often we get into these response habits we get into these patterns where okay well i just say that's stupid so therefore i don't have to hear it anymore and instead of you know being willing to open up a bit and say what okay of all the things that were in that video is there one idea that you know that might be worth looking at again and that's it's interesting that to try to get that because because what i see is a habitual response happening well and that's a that is a and, and even to help a student to identify and to know this that that's a natural we're always Absolutely. going to want to feel comfort that that's understandable and i appreciate that and there is a time and a place to feel you know 100 percent calm relaxed and comfortable it isn't necessarily when we're trying to learn something, and especially when we're trying to learn something that might be a little tricky or something new. Or so, like, I think there's an example in the book around just the language of when you're introducing a new topic, you start by saying, this is new. And so this is gonna feel pretty uncomfortable because you don't know anything about this yet. And it's, it's a hard topic. So just be prepared that there's gonna be a little bit of discomfort and that's okay because that means that we're starting the learning process and you are getting smarter when you do this. So helping students to also, or you know, anyone in any situation, I, I wanna keep staying open to all the people who might benefit from this, um, being able to have that awareness of when things should be comfortable and when it's a good thing to feel a little discomfort, label it, notice it, naming it and just taking the power out of the scariness of it is going to help our nervous system to stay in that you know parasympathetic 
parasympathetic state where it can be open to learning. This if we start right a window, yeah. window, yeah, it it just is so counterproductive to try and teach something that's hard and new when our brains are wanting to just shut down and stay yeah. into survival mode. Yeah, yeah. Then we know we got to, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got to figure out what that's, those thoughts are that's creating that. And is there a thought, you know, is there any wiggle room in those thinking, those thoughts so that we can find one that's more useful to learn? And I think, as you mentioned, little baby step is always the way. What's the smallest thing you would be willing to stay open to learning? <laughs> yeah, 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 because then we can start a foundation and build on it. But if they're, if it's all not anything they're interested in, and that's, that's why we really focus on, okay, what result are you getting that you don't like? you know, that you want to change and okay, then what, what are the things you're open to learning about that? Because and I like that idea. Yeah. When you start with their interests and what they want, again, we're helping to keep the window open because it's not yeah. so scary. If you're interested in it, you're much less likely to be scared and having your nervous system start to, you know, increase in terms of the fear of what lies ahead. So starting yeah. with interest, using curiosity as your guide, I highly recommend. I love that feeling. That's one of my favorite ones that when we do the steer mapping, if I can put curious in that emotion line, lots of options open in the action line. And it's, you know, we just have to find the sentence that helps stimulate that curiosity. Well, I really do want to, whatever it is, and then we can get to curiosity and then we can start talking about the various actions. So the next question is how can we help them build resilience when things don't go as planned? Which happens. <laughs> I know, and, and really resilience is such a buzzword these days. And it is because it is such a valuable characteristic to have. And yet I think what's missing out there right now that we offer in the flexible mindsets is this idea of, um, we mentioned flexible mindset feedback on page 75. And, and the focus is that it's not just about persevering, it's also adding in flexible strategy use. It yes. isn't just about effort. It isn't yes. just about, oh, if you just keep trying, you know, there are, again, speaking about equitable, um, equitable education, there are effort is, first of all, a subjective feeling. You have no idea how much any person, how much effort anyone no. is putting in anything. No. And we, we cannot make assumptions around effort and how much is needed for a student in any one area. It is, it's one of those things that if we just say try harder, we aren't actually giving them the strategies that they are gonna need in order to try harder. So it's really in a flexible mindset model, it's perseverance plus flexible strategy use that is the key. So how can I keep going and try something new? Yeah, it's, it's the combination yep. of the two that is really key when building resilience. So yes, I want to keep going, but I can't just keep doing, we talk about perseverating, which I think is an important thing. The distinction between, it's interesting how they're spelled the same. Isn't it? Perseverate. I didn't realize that until I read your book. <laughs> and they are so different. And what we want to especially help uh, individuals on the spectrum with is that perseverating piece. Mm -hmm. So when, when do we notice that it's time to quit? When do we know that this, this, what you're doing right now isn't working? And yes, we want you to persevere and keep trying, but we want you to try something different. And that's the key. The more we can continue to say, what else can we try? Which is the key question for complex problem solving. That's 
going to help us to keep putting effort, doing something different, and learning from that experience again with that trial and error approach. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so good, so good. All right. So then the the um, the question that comes up is which questions are best to stimulate creative problem solving, and then which stimulate creativity. I was I had a little trouble with that when I was trying to apply that with my young adults at home. Yeah, so, you know, and this was interesting hearing this question because um, part of me was like, when we, Julie and I, in writing the book, this, we came up to this problem all the time. It's like, oh, does that go in the critical thinking or does that complex problem? Because honestly, they're like this. They, they, they whenever, yeah. whenever we're being creative, we're often thinking critically, we're often having to solve complex, we, it, they're a little bit inextricably linked. So it's, it's a tricky question. However, what we did ended up doing, which I think really helped us to differentiate when we were, you know, when we'd found some new and interesting research or something we wanted to include in the book is we had those three guiding questions. And for critical thinking, it is, does this make sense? So when you are exploring something, you wanna be, and you wanna be critical, you wanna be continually thinking, does this make sense? And of course, we have lots of examples of different ways to ask that. But when we're talking about complex problem solving, we want to say, what else can we try is the question. It is about looking at doing things differently and finding multiple ways to, to look at a, a problem. And then when we're talking about creativity, we're more looking at what are the possibilities. So that's more about imagining. And the imagining piece, so when we're asking questions that are helping students to be creative, we're asking them to think about possibilities. We're, we're encouraging them to imagine something different than what they're experiencing right now. But when it comes to the problem solving, we're actually trying to do things differently. And then when we're being critical thinkers, we're checking in with ourselves through a variety of different questions to see, does, does what I'm saying make sense? Or does what I'm reading or hearing make sense? Does so that kind of clarify the yeah, difference? That, may, that definitely helps. This chart sort of summarizes the differences. And you've got three strategies under each. How much? We got 10 more minutes. <laughs> well, yeah. It was interesting because the, those, so those three strategies are described very in each. So in the critical thinking chapter, we go into details and instructions of how to, you know, um, do is, is not, prove okay. it, impossible to grasp. Uh, and and there's, <laughs> there you go. And then in chapter seven, we explicitly give you directions for how to try the strategy of shifting perspectives, um, sorry, through Mixed Master, Fork in the Road, and the Mind Reminder. And then in chapter eight, we give you all of the instructions for bending, breaking, and blending, diffuse dreams, and crazy connections. And we're not suggesting that there's only three strategies for each, but no. what I think you'll notice when you look at the instructions, one, it's doing what, again, we're suggesting is helpful for students is to model first. This is what critical thinking looks like. If you try the is, is not strategy with somebody and you walk through it, they'll start to understand, oh, that's what it means to be a critical thinker. And yes, there's lots of other things that you can apply these strategies to, but they're really helping students to uncover what does it mean to be a critical thinker, to actually engage in complex problem solving, and to be creative. So it gives them the language. It gives what we have in the book is also some checklists so that students can do that metacognitive piece for themselves and figure out 
you know, to what extent am I a critical thinker or am I doing complex problem solving or am I being creative? And then the, that tool, which I also, I love about a self-awareness tool is then if there's areas that you don't feel strong, you can, it gives you some insights into where I might want to focus my attention to be able to grow. Perfect, perfect. Well, those, I, I, you know, I just highly recommend getting a copy because I know I'm going to keep referring to it. I'm glad I got the Kindle version so it's on my phone and handy. For me, that works really well, not for everybody. Um, but I just think this is a nice summary of, okay, this is where we need to go. What these three questions, we need to have those at the tip of our tongue when our kids are, you know, our young adults are facing a, a challenge and a, how can we help them pull it apart and figure out what are some of the slow things down, figure out what are some of the options, what's going on. What can we try? What are, what's the little tiniest thing that we're willing to try to see uh, that incrementality in an incremental way? You know, how can we build it? And this gets back to, we did get three more questions yesterday. So I wasn't able to put them in the, um, in, in, actually I might be able to. The first question is, how do you deal with frustrated and discouraged parents? So we have frustrated and discouraged parents who um, struggle with no, you know, with any hope of improvement, you know? Yeah, and it was interesting, in these questions that just came in recently, I just noticed there's there's quite a, a theme of, of resistance. And yeah. the, the, the piece that I will say is really important whenever we're talking about resistance is to think of the nervous system, because where there is resistance, there is fear. And where there is fear, we cannot expect someone who is feeling afraid to, be open to change, to be open to hearing what we're going to say. So I think the first step, whenever we're coming up against any type, all of these address a different, these four questions all have a level of resistance in them. And where we want to go is we want to meet them where they're at and, and help them to build that sense of safety that who I am right now is okay. Let's, let's work on opening that window for learning, let's build them to a place where they can feel like now I can hear you that there might be something else to try. But first, let's reinforce what's helping you to feel safe, what's helping you building those trusting relationships, which we have a whole chapter in the book around building trusting relationships because that is the fundamental piece that we need to have in place in order for that resistance and the nervous system to be open and receptive. So the, the, there's a, a number of six different ways to communicate to keep that dialogue open so that we're helping to keep the resistance low. And that is those types of activities and, and communicating in a way with the people that we're working with um, or the people in our lives in a way that reinforces that they are okay, that what who they are, they are accepted and that they have strengths and that they're hearing, you know, back, they're feeling seen and heard by the people in their lives and that those messages are consistent. It's not, you know, I say one thing and do something else. That's, that's very scary for the nervous system. It doesn't feel like you can trust. So we have a lot of language in there around how to start to help someone's nervous system feel less afraid so that we can be more open to considering something different or um, trying to do something differently. 
the skill that we emphasize is listening. You know, when we think about, I mean, theoretically, in our conversations, we listen half the time, at least half the time, right? If it's two or more people, you got a third of the time that you're talking and two thirds where you're listening. And yet that skill is not explicitly taught. And, but we do that in the Art of Adulting. We explicitly teach what reflective listening is and how to do it. And it's hard, it's, it's uncomfortable to do it at first because it requires that the listener grab the essence of what they're saying and reflect it back in words to the other person. And that is not something that comes naturally to any of us. We are already thinking about what we're gonna say. We're not thinking about how do I summarize what they're saying, what's the essence of the meaning that they're trying to convey to me. It's, I just think it's the number, you know, it's just the number one partnering skill we have to practice with our kids. That's how we're gonna connect with them is by listening. And I had to teach myself this. My son five years ago was was in a depression dip with some suicide ideation. And he was telling me that the therapist wasn't helping. And I was thinking, well, we gotta figure this one out. So we decided to walk together. And we walked for half an hour every day, five days a week at the end of the day. And I consciously had to zip my lips and not say anything and just do the best I could to reflect so that he could get his thoughts out and that is so valuable to him to speak his thoughts. It makes such a difference. And so if we can just let them do that, and then, you know, there would be a triggering something that would trigger me and it would be like, oh, you can't, you know, he'd say, oh, I'm gonna move out or something, you know, radical. <laughs> you know? And I was like, yeah, but you're not ready yet. And, and, you know, and we'd have all those conversations that were, you know, and I'd have to go back later on and say, you know, I'm so sorry, I reacted to what you were saying, I wasn't, as a responsive listener. That's okay, mom, I know you. <laughs> it's just you know, adorable. But it was, I was sharing my struggle with him. I was sharing, you know, where I noticed that I was not doing what I said I wanted to do. And I think that I, that was really helpful. The two of us kept getting closer and closer and I certainly understood the way his brain worked. So better than I do, not that I always do, but. In that case, you know, I could understand better what he was thinking. So to me, it's the listening and the reflecting skills that are so critical to help my, my kids feel safe with me. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, those trusting relationships, they are not easy to build sometimes, but they are worth every bit of our time and effort uh, to start there. Yes, and what a challenge it is to do that. Um, one of the, Bill Nassen, who runs the autism discussion page, he's a psychologist that has worked for 30 years. He's trying to retire um, with this, with autistic people. And he says that in, in, he never, when dealing with the families of autistic people, he's never seen things so highly emotional. So there's something about that, um, you know, trying to solve these problems that's just not obvious to us. And it sets us up for those, um, this, you know, not respond responses that are not helpful. Yeah, and I I feel like um, you know especially when we're talking about I didn't mention this before when we were talking about feelings and and just to be aware for those individuals who are on the spectrum that you know they're they're fully wired for feelings and empathy and and in fact I think what gets in the way and I you've mentioned this in some of your other work I think is is the processing of all of that simultaneously in the moment that is too much. You yes. know, 
to be empathetic. Of course, people on the spectrum are feeling that flood. They're almost feeling too much. They're yeah. feeling the flood of emotion for someone else. And in that moment, because we can't simultaneously process all of those complicated feelings, we can't have a response in that moment. And so yeah. it may present like we are not having empathy or we're yeah. not having a feeling. But, but yeah, but in fact, as we learn more about our feelings and as we learn how to be more present with those feelings in the moment and you know it's absolutely a skill i think everyone would benefit from becoming learning more about how to be empathetic and respond in the moment in a way that's helpful but it's so important for people to recognize that that understanding of the feelings and the empathy it just may take more time and the processing is just really complicated but it can be done yes. and it's it's work worth doing Absolutely, because it's a lifelong skill that we all are continuing to get better at. And it will make a difference in the kind of support they get in the team that's around them in the workplace and in any of the significant, you know, important relationships that they have. So, yeah, this is, I, I just, we try it and try it and try it and try it and keep trying it, um, both at home and when I, uh, with my clients. So let's just, you know, summarize, here we are with the flexible mindsets in schools. I just take that schools and I substitute it with home. And I have learned so much from your book and I really appreciate your time with us. I think you've really given us the essence of it. Um, and I'm looking forward to, to reviewing the transcription because that's when it really starts to sing, sink in better with me. <laughs> I have to see it, hear it twice. Um, so we'll be getting that available to everybody as well. Thank you so much for inviting me and for all of these thoughtful uh, questions from your audience. I, it was fantastic. Oh, you're very welcome. Yes, well, thanks and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Great. Bye for now.